I want to introduce our time in God's Word today by asking you to think with me about what's commonly expected of pastors and what's commonly expected of churches. Commentator Michael Brown says this, the pastor needs to be a dynamic speaker, expert counselor, marriage therapist, visionary leader, church growth expert, fundraiser, staff administrator, and team player with a warm and winsome personality that makes everyone at all times feel welcome, loved, and important. He actually then pulls church pastor requirements to see what they're actually online requiring of their next pastoral candidate. And I think all of these go hand in hand with pastors and churches. There's overlap. So here's what people are looking for in their next pastor. Literal examples. The pastoral candidate must be a confident leader with an intuitive understanding of individuals within the congregation. An intuitive understanding? Uh, never mind, I'll stop. I won't make any more comments. He must think strategically, must be culturally relevant, must be an effective visionary, must be a decisive decision maker and able to cast a vision with long-term vision and building expansion. We are looking for a man who believes, who believers are not able to resist because of the wisdom and spirit with which he speaks. Our next senior pastor must be a senior pastor in a large church, has grown a church, a demonstrated leader, has a positive attitude, a team player, a consensus builder. He's genuine and authentic, but doesn't wear his heart on his sleeve, culturally relevant, especially toward younger adult demographics, and has no outstanding unresolved issues. (laughs) He is winsome, gracious, enthusiastic, discerning, confident, but not arrogant inspirational, creative, a communicator, a preacher, a teacher, a visionary, a delegator, develops a team, a trainer. He is technologically savvy. He promotes peace and unity without compromising doctrinal purity. I'll stop. So it's no wonder, it is no wonder that oftentimes pastors and churches end up not looking anything like biblical pastors or biblical churches. It's no wonder, right? It's like identity crisis on steroids, like crazy, crazy sauce to use technical theological language, right? I mean, who, who meets the qualification? Even all the best ones, we would have to say, well, I'm glad Jesus is our new pastor. I mean, theologically, we could say that's good. He's the chief shepherd, but that's just a total aside. The pressure, folks, is real. The pressure is real for me as a pastor and for us as a local church to be something other than what the Lord Jesus Christ intended. The pressure is real. And that's what brings us today to our study of that small little book of the Bible, that volume in the Bible, that letter called Second Timothy. And so if you have a Bible, or if you don't, you can find a Bible on your iPhone or your Android or whatever your device of choice is, and you can find this book called Second Timothy. And Second Timothy is four chapters. It's easy to understand. It's really to the point. It's patient and forceful at the same time. But Second Timothy is where we are right now. We've been studying this short letter as a church for just a short time. If you're just joining us, I'll bring you right up to speed. Here's what's happening in 2 Timothy. 
In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, who's the older pastor mentor, is in Roman imprisonment. He's going to have his head chopped off. Okay, It's his swan song. It's the end for him. And he's passing on the spiritual baton, if you will, as if it were a race, to a younger pastor named Timothy. Thus, 2 Timothy. So he's he's encouraging Timothy. But if you read the whole thing, we won't do it right now because we all want lunch. And I hear there's a volleyball game on later. But you read the whole thing, you, you get this sense that Paul's not scolding Timothy, but he is firm with him. And he's encouraging him. He's re- he's reminding him. That kind of verbiage is used again and again. Remember, I remind you, remember. But what he is doing is this. He's calling Timothy to be faithful to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, protecting it and promoting it. He's calling Timothy, who's pastoring a church called the church at Ephesus, to then share what he learns from Paul with the other Christians. And so that's why I go back and forth between pastor and church, because First Timothy tells us Timothy's pastoring in Ephesus. So I think so many of the things in this letter are, yes, applied to me or to you if you're a pastor, but by extension, we can make the right assumption that it applies to us as a church because he's pastoring that church. The Ephesian church is feeling the pressure. Earlier I said the pressure is real for mission drift because these people want us to do this and these people want us to be that. And there are all these different expectations of pastors and all these different expectations of churches. Paul's calling Timothy to not have mission drift, which is a call to the Ephesian church to not have mission drift. And it's all about the gospel. There are other important things in life, but it's not what pastors have been called to deal with. There are other important needs that people have, but it's not what the church is called to deal with. We have a unique, very, let's call it lean, focused calling, and it has to do with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, because if we don't do it, no one else will. Okay, so that, that's the gist of what's happening. Today what we'll do is we'll look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and there are four commands. We'll see if we get through all of them, and if we don't, we'll have to wait two weeks because... Next week's Christmas Eve, so we'll, we'll, we'll do something Christmassy, I promise, okay? So, but what, four, four commands, so our outline, we'll follow the four commands in this text, uh, four imperatives, four mandates, I think the last section was four mandates, so four more mandates for Christians and for churches if we want to be maybe not relevant in the eyes of the world, but relevant in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we really want to meet people's greatest need, we're going to want to take these mandates, these ministry mandates, to heart. One more thing. Is all of this just a bunch of hype and it's irrelevant because you know what? There's nothing to worry about. Well, if we came to that conclusion, we would be ignorant of Bible history And we would also be ignorant of history after the Bible. Because church history recorded in the Bible and church history recorded outside of the Bible is filled with church, can I say, corpses. Churches that used to be on point when it comes to their calling. And now they're not. I just don't want to be a part of that. I I mean, I have other things to do. (laughs) 
right? We all have other things to do. If we're not doing what God wants us to do, then let's just join a different kind of club uh, and sleep in and watch the game early or something like that. But if we really want to act like Christians and we really want to be a legitimate church and I want to be a legitimate, legitimate pastor, I want to take these things to heart. Did I say one more thing? Okay, one more thing. Because I'm not a perfect pastor. <laughs> I don't think Paul's scolding Timothy. He's exhorting him. I'm not scolding you. I don't think OBC, Omaha Bible Church, is in a horrible place of mission drift. I think these are good preventatives, good encouragements. And so if I raise my voice and get intense and passionate, it's because I'm intense and passionate about important gospel things, but I'm not in scolding mode by any means. All right, let's go. Number one, the first imperative, the first gospel ministry mandate, let's make it simple, be strong. Be strong. And this is important because of what's come in chapter one, because Paul's already named some people who've stayed with him in gospel ministry, but other people didn't like suffering because of the gospel, because of persecution, because their family didn't like it, because their boss didn't like it, because their neighbors didn't like it. For whatever reason, they're not faithful anymore. And so now by way of contrast, look at verse one of chapter two, you then emphatically and by way of contrast, you then Some translations might even say, but to capture the contrast, you then, my child, so he's not scolding, you then, we're spiritual siblings, we're on the same team, this should resonate with both of us, we've got the same spiritual DNA, right? You then, my child, and here's our command, be strengthened, the ESV says. I memorized it in the New American Standard, be strong. And I actually want to utilize both of those. Be strengthened captures the idea, but so does be strong. And let's focus on be strong first. Because we all get it. We all understand. And it is, I've mentioned many times, it is a command, but grammar is actually important here. It's a present tense command. Timothy, and by extension, Ephesian church, be strong and stay strong. Be strong and stay strong. Well, we understand the metaphor, what it means to be strong. When you're, when you're strong, you have power. When you're strong, you have stability. When you're strong, you can do things. When you're strong, you're not a pushover, right? When you're strong, you're not weak. Be strong. But he tells us what he's getting at. Be strong by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong. Keep being strong. You know, keep working out, if you will. Stay strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Well, we've learned by now, and if you're just joining us, we'll we'll bring you up to speed. That's just another synonym for the gospel. He uses so many different ways throughout the letter to talk about the gospel. The grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in that. Right? So what does that mean? Well, the grace that is in Christ Jesus is gospel grace. Grace is receiving something you don't deserve freely. It's not based upon your works. It's based upon his works. So, so be strong in that. Be strong in gospel grace. The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the law of God because we don't. 
And he died a sinner's death as if he were a lawbreaker, though he wasn't one because he's a substitute. He was raised victoriously from the grave, proving that it was all legitimate, said and done, also raised on behalf of his people. He himself said, though you die, you will live if you trust in me. So all of that is gospel truth. That All of that it comes to you and to, you, to me if we're trusting in Christ. How? Freely. By grace it comes. Okay, it's nothing we do. So be strong in the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be gospel strong, right? You need spiritual amino acids, right? I mean, all that it takes to be strong, you need to be spiritually strong. But what is it in? It's gospel. Our calling is a gospel calling so that we can promote and tell people the good news of salvation in Christ because that's what's rescued us. We also need to protect it. That comes up, up in Second Timothy as well. And we have to protect it because others are assaulting it. And so he calls him to strength, something powerful. It's an image we can all grasp. One preacher who comes out of a pretty weak background, I thought it was kind of interesting. I won't name names because I'm nice. I think that was one of those things you're supposed to be. <laughs> Coming from a pr- not known for strong preaching, this preacher says this, a preacher may not be a great man, but the, but he must preach great matters. Here's what I wanted to capture. Daintiness would slur a sermon just as a pink ribbon would make a cannon appear ridiculous. He's speaking something about the tone. There's something strong about the gospel tone. Yes, it, it makes us smile. It's the good news. But it's the good news about the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said on the cross, not in a ridiculous kind of weak way, it is finished. No, it is finished. His work is done. He's the strong Savior is who he is. So church of Ephesus, by way of application for us, by way of application to pastors, be strong, stay strong in what? Gospel realities. We must. It's what we must do. It's a vital reality lest we not actually live as a church. Maybe Mr. Rogers will work during peacetime, but he won't work during wartime. There's a strong posture here. Grammar point, or, and, and there's another point. Now let's look at it from the, so I, I wanted to use New American Standards take. They translated it as be strong. I like that. I think it's good and appropriate. The ESV nuances it a little bit and captures the passive because it is passive. Be strengthened. I think both of these actually are true. Be strengthened. Because the very same thing that we're to preach strongly with clarity is the very same thing that strengthens us, you see. The very same thing that strengthens the pastor, the very same thing that strengthens the congregation is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. So what are we up to? What are we up to? What we're up to is, yes, we want to promote the good news and defend the good news. But you know what really stokes the fire of doing that? You know how to do that? It's not just by having a strong personality. It's not just by this, that, or the other thing. Emotionalism. Uh, it, it actually comes out of the fruit of us being strengthened. We are strengthened. That's the passive voice in the ESV. We are strengthened by the gospel. And therefore, if we're strengthened by the gospel, it helps us to be strong in the gospel. You see? Too many times, what we do is we think that we need to be strong in the gospel. 
but we ourselves don't find ourselves strengthened by the gospel. Let me remind you of what it says in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, I think I may have done this last week as well. Chapter 1, book in chapter 16. He gives the hint in chapter 1 that he's writing to Christians about the gospel. Oh, he does say the gospel is the power of God unto salvation in Romans 1.16. But earlier he talks about how he's wanting to come and preach the gospel to the saints who are in Rome. Why would the saints need to hear the gospel if it's the power of God unto salvation? Because chapter 16, bookend, reminds them that the way to become spiritually strong is not divorced from the gospel. It's actually also from the gospel. He says this, Romans 16, 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you, how? Now that we've moved past the gospel to move on to other practical things, no, he says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's overlapping, same thing, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. You're strong by the gospel so you can be strong in promoting and protecting the gospel. Ah, that's helpful. I've mentioned this numerous times. I'll do it again because it captures the idea. Uh, we had a special event here one night. Maybe it was a vacation Bible school thing. And a Christian friend from out of town was here. And, and he said something like this to me. I saw what you did there, Pat. I said, oh, really? What did I do? You know, he, you knew there were unbelievers there. So you preached the gospel. I used to think like that. I don't think like that anymore. The whole book of Romans is about the gospel. And it's profound and it's deep because it's giving you different angles and implications and ramifications because tied to the gospel, we end up having justification and we have sanctification and we have glorification and we have all kinds of other Asians that are important, like imputation, right? And you go, I need that to help me to grow spiritually, to understand the height and depth and breadth and grandeur of the finished work of Christ that is irreversible, that nothing can take me out of his hand. I, I, that, those are all gospel realities. Be strong by being strengthened. And so more and more, the longer I'm a pastor, the more I think it resonates with my mind what the reformers would talk about. The ordinary means of grace. What are we trying to do? What, are, what in the world are we trying to do? Put on a circus? Are we trying to meet everyone's need for everything they would ever have in life? No. But we are committed to the ordinary means of grace. Because they're the extraordinary means of grace. Guess what? The preaching of the word of God, law and gospel the right administration of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, right? Uh, the singing of one another uh, to one another and to the glory of God and the corporate worship and those kinds of things and prayer. Just the basic things. That's what we do. That's what we do. And what you'll notice in all of those things, if we are spiritually sane, they all have a gospel focus. We just saw it today. Be strengthened so that you can be strong. That's what we're up to. That's what's happening here. There's a gospel shape in all of it. 
Let's move on to another one, another imperative, another command, another ministry mandate number two. And I'll just capture this one in one word because I think it's the word that he's going to use. And it's the word entrust. Entrust. If Omaha Bible Church wants to be a faithful church and not have our lampstand removed, read the book of Revelation. Light is snuffed out because you're no longer a church other than church in name only. And guess what? The Ephesian church isn't in an altogether healthy place when you get to the book of Revelation. So if we want to keep our lampstand that symbolizes that we're a real church, we're going to be about entrusting. We're going to be about entrusting. How about chapter 2, verse 2? It says in verse 2, And what you have heard from me... What kind of things has he heard? Please, don't make me depressed. Starts with a G, (laughs) right? He's been hearing gospel things from Paul. The things you've heard from me, the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, maybe that's because Paul's not been ashamed of the gospel and so he's been bold about it. That would be true. But in the presence of many witnesses, he might actually have something else in mind. I'm not sure, but some people think this, and I think they're onto something. In the presence of many witnesses, Timothy, when you were commissioned to be a pastor... Remember, he did talk in chapter 1, verse 6, about the laying on of my hands, symbolizing official commissioning. Timothy, remember the things that I told you in the presence of many witnesses, perhaps at your, what we would call, ordination. When you were uniquely affirmed and commissioned and called, sent, and all of those other things to do gospel church ministry. Timothy, remember that commissioning day. Here's our command in verse 2. Entrust. Entrust. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As a pastor, he's called to preach the truth of Christ and the the requirements that God has to anybody and everybody who will possibly listen and maybe if they won't listen. But he's talking about something different here. Timothy, as I pass you the baton and I'm entrusting this to men like you as a young pastor, I want you to carry on this succession, if you will, right? This mindset, if you will. This is what we do. Because you too one day are going to pass off the scene. And one of the vital things you need to do as a church and one of the vital things you need to do as a pastor is be looking to the future, looking to help others, and you're entrusting gospel truth to them. You're entrusting gospel truth to them. It's protecting, right? The entrusting idea, it's protecting, it's preserving, it's not diluting, it's not trying to improve upon. It's it's the real deal to begin with. And you need to find people who are trustworthy, who will do the very thing I'm calling you to do, is what he's getting at, no doubt. The word that he uses, faithful men, it actually is a word that's sometimes used in a generic sense for humankind. So faithful human beings, sometimes we say men, and it's generic. It's used that way in other texts. That could be what he has in mind. If he's talking to Timothy as a pastor, to a pastor, and he's talking about the man of God, like in chapter 3, verse 17, then he's talking about pastors and he's talking about men. In principle, both are true. In principle, both are true. Because we actually end up doing both. Congregations made up of men and women. We're looking for people who will lead. Hopefully we're all a part of it. But we are looking for those who are faithful, who will be committed to 
protecting and promoting so we have a baton to pass on to the next generation. And it also is true with pastors. Reproduce yourself and be as passionate and clear and zealous and committed to preserving and protecting and then entrusting to other people because that's how this whole thing works. To be a faithful church or to be a faithful pastor. That's how this whole thing works. I love it. I love the imagery. It's strong. It's clear. It's bold. It's reasonable. Makes sense. In Titus chapter 1, it talks about uh, being God's stewards. That's a good overlap word for entrusting. I've got a stewardship. It's not the church isn't mine. The church isn't yours. The sheep aren't mine. Something unique has been entrusted to us with the gospel that is for the church. It's also used in First, uh, First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, uh, being stewards of the mysteries of God. It's used twice there. I won't have us turn there. By way of application, and then we'll move on. I'm encouraged. I'm not claiming to be good at this. I'm encouraged um, with the spirit of this sort of thing that happens and happens at Omaha Bible Church. It makes me happy. I want to excel still more, but it makes me happy that there is a serious, sober-minded devotion to the work of Christ, promoting it and protecting it as far as the gospel is concerned, and seeking to train next generation kinds of people to do the same kind of thing. I, I, I love it. I love it that it happens on a weekly basis around here in classes. I love it that it happens in homes. I'm gl- I love it that it happens in small groups. I love it that it happens in the books we promote and books we write and uh, things that we produce. Uh, I, I love it that it does. I, to, for me to even consider the number of pastors and future church leaders that came to our last conference that we hosted and that you all made a success makes me happy, makes me encouraged. I want to do more, but at least we're taking this seriously, entrusting gospel realities to other people in other places because it's really important that we don't just think about ourselves. It's good. Highlight, one of the highlights, I have to be careful what I say. I'm in front of family and friends. <laughs> one of the highlights of my week this last week is having lunch with a couple of pastors in a different city. And the one man who's a friend said that he heard about someone else in his city who was getting ready to start preaching through the book of Romans. And he reached out to his friend and he said, we need to talk before you start. He said, oh, really? Yeah, we need to talk before you start so that you don't make the same mistakes I made. When it comes to the gospel, made me so happy, made me so happy. Because we got to help that pastor understand what Romans 2.13 means and what it doesn't mean. And I just thought, next gen, this is awesome. I love this. And then I patted myself on the back and said, Pat, you're such a good person. (laughs) No, I didn't. (laughs) I didn't. But it encouraged me, right? I think it was Alistair Begg who said when I was a student in chapel, best chapel we ever had uh, in my time as a seminary student, I didn't know who this guy was, but he was wild-eyed young preacher at the time. And he said, men, compliments are like perfume. It's okay to sniff it, but don't drink it, it'll kill you. (laughs) 
But it sounded better because he has a cool accent and I don't. (laughs) Encouragement that comes from these things. These are good things. These are great things. I am so optimistic. In some ways I'm pessimistic. But in other ways I am so optimistic when it comes to the gospel going forth with clarity and boldness around the world. I got an email from another country this morning. Preacher getting ready to go and preach, giving me quotes, saying, I'm preaching on Luke chapter 2, and the only reason I think I understand it now as clear as I do is because of these certain categories that we share when it comes to understanding theology in the Bible. Made me so happy. So happy. Okay, we'd better move on, lest we have too much happiness. Three and four are going to go together so we can go pretty quickly. The third imperative command by way of application for Omaha Bible Church and for any other church that's a legitimate church and any and all pastors who are legitimate pastors, first to Timothy, then to the Ephesian church, number three, suffer. And let's add to it, suffer like a soldier. Suffer like a soldier. It's in verses 3 to 6. How about verse 3? Share in suffering. There it is. Share in suffering. That's the command. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Suffer as a good soldier. Paul would have actually known all about this and probably would have had it about up to here when it comes to soldiers because he's under Roman imprisonment getting ready to be executed. Right? They're taking turns as they did guarding him. So he knew all about soldiers and he knew all about all about soldiers who are faithful to the glory of Rome above all else. But sometimes we can steal images from even pagans, even gladiators relevant to sermons, right? The best movie that was ever out, by the way. (laughs) It's the image just to see, right? We need to be like that soldier that no matter what happens, I am committed to a higher calling. And even if it means my life, I've got to stand guard and do what I've been called to do. That's the image Paul is borrowing in a dark time. And he's like, I'm going to redeem that image. Timothy, you need to be like a Roman soldier in a certain way. Don't flinch, right? Don't waffle. Don't compromise. Suffer like a faithful soldier suffers. That's the call. And we won't talk about suffering and why suffering and all this. I just remind you of Jesus who only ever spoke the truth always and forever. He only ever loved his neighbor. He only ever loved his father perfectly. He did everything exactly right. And when even an unbelieving pagan leader said, I find no fault, the people said, give us Barabbas. And I am not perfect. I preach a perfect gospel because it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I shouldn't be baffled and bemused when people don't like what I say, what I stand for. They don't like this church. They don't like me preaching the gospel and they don't like you preaching the gospel. It shouldn't baffle our minds because we're, because of what happened to Jesus. And he said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. But what are we called to do? Omaha Bible Church, we are called, if you will, by way of application to stand as faithful guards who are soldiers, who are strong, who are committed to entrusting. And if we're not strong, there won't be anything to entrust using all the overlap of metaphors now, suffer like a good soldier. 
I can preach this. It's pretty easy for me to do, but I hate when I have to do it if I'm honest. I want people to like me. I want people to like this church. I want people to like my Savior. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. And sometimes I would rather just maybe doctor up the message a little bit and trim the edges and maybe soften, or maybe they want something more legalistic and I can give them something harsher to try to win them over, like a good politician giving people what they want. Suffer like a soldier for the gospel, Timothy, is what he's saying. If need be, that's what you do. I have illustrations of people like John Bunyan. I have people illustrations from people like William Carey, but for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over those. How about the discipline for a soldier? Let's go to verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Another translation says, in everyday life. So the analogy is, they've got to say no to a lot of other things that everybody else can say yes to. And I don't think Paul's losing his ever-loving apostolic mind and telling Timothy that he has no other responsibilities, so therefore you cannot be elder qualified anymore, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, I don't think that's the idea. We would be abusing this passage if we said he has no other responsibilities. But it's a picture. It's an illustration. The one that we can understand. Right? Like soldiers who don't have the same recreational life as everybody else has. Or maybe even the same exact family life as everybody else has. So it's different. And you've got to say no. And he's saying, you've got to say no. It's different than being a civilian. It stands out. It's by way of contrast. Some of you guys understand this far better than I do. And we could apply this and think about all the pressure that comes to Omaha Bible Church to do all kinds of things. Because that's what people expect churches to do. Or for me, or our other pastors here, or pastors not here, all of these cultural expectations for the pastor to do all kinds of things that will take him into civilian life or take us into civilian life, if you will, and we won't be good guards. We won't be good sufferers for the gospel because we've left our first calling. So it's a good image for us, focused. Lots of application there, but we'll move on to why this is so critical. How about verse 4 where it goes on to say, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Doesn't that make sense? Probably would like to please himself, would like to please other people. But part of being a good soldier would be my number one allegiance is, in this case, the glory of Rome. Borrowing from that, my number one allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he's called me to be. This is what he's called me to do. He said it's his church, by the way, in Matthew 16. And we're his under shepherds and those who belong to him. And since we want that more than anything else, it's no wonder I can't help but jump ahead next week. He's going to say, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Oh, I want to please this person. I want to please that person. And I want to maybe compromise to maybe get them to like me more. Remember Christ. And he's the one who's commissioned us. And if we're not strong in the gospel, there won't be a gospel anymore to preach or to, or to share with people. Not enough Christians think of pastors as soldiers. 
And yet not enough pastors think of themselves as soldiers. Somebody put it this way. And pastors, if you let people's expectations set the course of your actions, then you will be at their mercy. And you will never be a faithful soldier to the one who enlisted you. I think that's right. And I think we can see a church kind of application. We don't want to have an identity crisis. We're not going to survey the neighborhood to find out what they're looking for in a church. Not going to do it. Well, for those of you who don't like Gladiator, I'm praying for you. (laughs) He uses some other images. (laughs) He uses an athletic image. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And the idea there is, there are certain things you have to do as an athlete or you get disqualified. And just it's a simple idea. Don't overanalyze it. Athletes do certain things. They have certain commitments. If they're going to succeed or if they're even going to keep, get to keep playing, if they're going to be any good at it, they have to do certain things to be good athletes. And it's commendable, right? If you've ever known an excellent athlete, you know that they don't do all the things that everybody else does. And the interesting thing is, although sometimes it's inconvenient, if they're a good athlete, you're like, I get it. Makes sense because they're a good athlete and they're committed to that. He's using that kind of image. So there are certain things that we're going to say no to, and it might not make sense to other people, but just like the athlete who's all in. And so they live a little bit differently to be good athletes. Well, this church should be that way. And people might not always understand. And pastors should be that way. People might not always understand. That's what's going on there. And for those of you who don't like gladiator and you don't like sports, let's talk about farmers. <laughs> Here we go, right? Verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And again, I think we could overanalyze that out of context. And I think in context, it's saying, if you don't do the hard work that farmers do, which takes them away from their family sometimes, and which takes them away from hanging out with their friends and causes late hours. And there's this, there's this super hard work involved in farming. I've never done farming, but I've bailed hay and I've dug ditches for years. So I still don't understand farming, <laughs> but I'm just saying there's this, there's this unique kind of calling. And we expect it of farmers. And if they don't do the work, then they're not going to have any produce. It's just how it works. And he's calling us to just reflect on these images and say, maybe I kind of get it better now what it means to be a pastor. Maybe now I kind of get it better what it means to be a legitimate church. We, we do have to march to the beat of Christ's drum, if you will, and it's going to put us out of sync with expectations sometimes. Timothy and the Ephesians are feeling the pressure from, from the metropolitan city that's wealthy, that's religious, not in great ways, that's not Christian, and it's not promoting Christian morality, and on and on the list goes, and they're feeling the pressure. And he's saying, listen, like an athlete, like a farmer, like a soldier... You do have to do it differently. That's what he's getting at. I think we can all understand this in theory. It makes total sense to us. It's a different kind of focus. Number four, finally, I told you we'd go fast and we have to go fast because this is not one we want to leave hanging around. Number four, contemplate this instruction. 
contemplate this instruction. This really should be point number three, but it's the fourth command. And I said I was going to give you four commands and I didn't want to lie. Number four is think about this. Keep thinking about this. This is really important. Meditate on this reality. It'll help you to be a more faithful Christian and or a pastor. Verse seven, think over. It's the idea of meditating. One translation says consider, but it's this, this, I need to keep thinking about this metaphor. I need to keep thinking about how we're called to something unique, wanting to serve the Lord Jesus Christ above any and all others. And it's going to mean we do things differently. That's what he's saying. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Keep thinking about the soldier metaphor. Keep thinking about the athlete metaphor. Keep thinking about the farmer metaphor. Right? And the implications and the ramifications. I want you to understand these things. To have insight into these things. Maybe how you could even, if you're thinking about this over and over again, you can think, okay, how can we apply this? How can, we, how can we flesh this out as a church? Maybe we need to think about things we're doing we shouldn't be doing. Maybe we should think about things that we aren't doing but we should be doing. Maybe as a pastor, I need to do the same kinds of things. If we're called to this unique, hyper-focused, if you will, calling, hmm, we might put some more time into this idea. Because we want to be a church and I want to be a pastor not in name only I don't want to just be well I'll, I'll leave it at that someone said you should start by going to your pastor's office and where it says pastor's office you should tear that sign down and put up a new one that says study I don't think we need to do that but I kind of like the shock effect. What should we do as a church though? Maybe we could have a church sign outside that says, we're here to not meet all of your needs. (laughs) Have a nice day. Church signs get you in trouble. They've gotten me in trouble before. We're not going to do that, okay? (laughs) But maybe more positively what we could do is know the gospel, be strengthened by the gospel, promote and protect the gospel. We could pray for one another. You could pray for me. You could insist that I be a gospel-promoting, gospel-defending pastor. We could do those kinds of things. One Sunday when I was gone, I asked a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who's here, who's an elder at our church, and I said, so how was the guest speaker? And he said, well, the law is good. (laughs) Interesting. I like having elders like that. And it's true. The Bible says the law is good. But it's interesting when people come and preach and they think they're preaching the gospel and they don't talk about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that comes to us freely. They just tell us all the timeless truths and principles that we must follow from the Bible to be good Christians. There's a place for that. Don't call it the gospel. What God requires is law, and it's really important. So when he said, well, the law is good, I knew what he was getting at. I want you to be discerning and thinking about these things. There are great days ahead on planet Earth 
for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that because of the promises of Christ. I don't know if we're going to be a part of it. Only God knows that. But I know that we're not going to be a part of it if we don't keep our first love according to the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. And the first love is the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news regarding Him. If we're going to keep a lampstand, we're going to be, by God's grace, for that. Promoting, protecting, defending. I so want to do it for another week. One week at a time. One week at a time. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together, for baptisms, for the fact that we were able to sing the truth about the Lord Jesus, that we were able to hear your word proclaimed, that we were able to hear a challenge from Paul to Timothy and by extension uh, to us as well. We're excited to be a part of the church. We're excited to be a part of what you're doing in the world. We pray for other believers around the world, men and women, boys and girls, that you would be stoking the fires of their hearts for the glory of Christ and the gospel. We know that people need Christ. They need forgiveness. They need reconciliation. And while we're not better than any other people, we do have good news to share with them because it's the same good news we've received. In Jesus' name, amen.